When you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member, life's an adventure with your long-distance amorcito. Because who doesn't love walking around the Big Apple con tu media naranja? Or finding the most romantic sunset overlooking the Pacific Ocean? And sneaking in besitos inolvidables in Venice? The Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Learn more at go.amex slash you know. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everyone. I'm Joanna, and this is Hyphenated, the podcast about living in the hyphen. Um, Jenny's not here today, but I am accompanied by a very good friend of mine. Uh, he's a TV writer, a comedian, and you know what? I'm not going to continue this introduction because I don't want to give anything away, um, even though the title of the episode probably gives a lot away. But uh, Alex Estrada, uh, my friend, my coworker, um, can't believe you're here on the podcast. I know, I know. It's crazy. Thank you for publicly coming out as my friend. That's, <laughs> I feel like that's um, you know a bad move for you career-wise, but... Uh... I mean, no, I pre- it's it's crazy. We work together every single day. You're, we you're, do. You're, you know, the head writer uh, now. I used to be head writer of Hamster and Gretel. You're now the head writer. I'm now something else that I don't fully understand. <laughs> you, we like to say around the office that you've gone to a better place. I've gone to a better place. Yeah. And weirdly, it's not better. It's not better. <laughs> it's the same place you've been for the last three years. It's crazy. Yes. <laughs> um, but me and you met, um, what is it like? 12 years ago? Or? Uh, I think it was 11, 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as I recall the story, uh, you and I were both placed on uh, house teams at the People's Improv Theater in New York City, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of a, a very gracious way of uh, of saying that, because <laughs> we were barely teams. <laughs> yeah, we, we were basically <laughs> just paying to perform in New York. That's right. kind of what what it was um i always thought you were really really funny and a very good writer and then when uh i started at flama i was like this guy's a good writer why don't we why don't we have him write a video and then you wrote a video that went super viral it did it Uh, did was it colexicans oh no it was if fourth of july was treated like cinco de mayo that's right 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 if 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 mexicans celebrated the fourth of july like americans celebrate the uh cinco de mayo uh, was the video? I know. I remember. I remember that day uh, very well because, uh, yeah, I remember getting those messages from you. That's like, oh, it's breaking our platform. This is when you could still get people to watch videos on uh, on Facebook, and uh, yeah, it was it was just like this crazy thing. It was it's the it's the most press uh, that anything I've ever done uh, has received, and uh, and still, uh, what seven uh, seven eight years on. Uh, so it's very, very sad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it ultimately ended up being the peak of your life, your opus, that's true. Uh, five mo- minute most, video. That's right. The most profitable uh, piece of content I ever made. And I was paid, I think, $200 for it. Uh, but and look it, it's at exciting. us. Look at us and now. Look at us look now. Look at now. And now yeah. we're making cartoons of Disney. Um, that's right. And getting paid approximately $200, which is amazing. <laughs> 
<laughs> for the work we do. Yes. So uh, a couple of years ago, I guess I guess it was years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we were we were hanging out, and me and you, we have a very jokey friendship. We even when we venture and speak about you know our mental health or how we're doing, it it's always tinged in humor. I feel. Um, like even when we're 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 being truthful, it always has to end with a joke. So yes, you know. So that's sort of, I think, where a lot of uh, why we collaborate so well, writing together, why where it comes from. Um, but a couple of years ago, we were talking in my office in Bushwick, and you had mentioned um, you had made a joke as you do that you were an orphan, that both your parents were were dead, they had passed in your twenties, um, and I remember very vividly you making a like passing remark about your dad and how you think that maybe or you thought at the point that maybe your dad was involved in a murder and i remember laughing because i thought you were kidding and i was like (laughs) you freaking weirdo and you were like i wish i was wish i was joking um (laughs) so you know from then on, you've sort of taken basically this question in your life that I'd like you to, to explain to our audience a little bit more, but you've taken this question in your life and have tried to find an answer to it, right? Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and, and just sort of, you know, catching uh, uh, everyone up. Uh, so the, the, the story, the way the story goes is that when I was a, a kid and growing up, um, we used to get these uh, phone calls uh, to my house. We get this call that was like, oh, this is a collect call from Calvin Jones, who is an inmate at a California correctional facility. You know, you get those little robot call things there. And my uh, my dad would always uh, accept these calls, which was weird because, you know, my dad was a super cheap guy and like would never t- accept any of our calls collect. Uh, this is back when people still use payphones, but he always took the calls from uh, from this dude. And this was just sort of like part of our lives growing up that when Calvin called, you would take the phone to dad and, you know, dad would talk to him. And if he wasn't home, then you would just sort of hang up. And it wasn't until I was a teenager in uh, in high school that I sort of was like, yeah, who uh, who the hell is this guy who keeps uh, calling our house? And so uh, at that point, I discovered or found out or was told uh, that uh, basically Calvin had been my dad's best friend and that before I was born, uh, before my siblings were born, um, dad and Calvin had been put on trial for the murder of their business partner back in the 1970s. Uh, and uh, yeah, and that was just kind of like a little piece of my childhood. Uh, <laughs> just like a fun little fact like oh yeah i had a swing set oh my parents moved around a lot and my dad was put on a murder trial in the 70s <laughs> we have an above ground pool and yeah my dad's a very dangerous person uh yeah and so and the thing is you know my dad uh sort of told me told me this kind of story at the time uh you know that they'd sort of both been uh set up in a way that it was a a politically motivated prosecution and the police were incompetent and ultimately the the case was dropped against my dad but calvin was convicted of this murder and the entire you know since before i was born and my entire childhood up until uh my my 20s like you know that that was the thing calvin was in jail and he would call and talk to my dad all the time 
And uh, yeah, and so for for many years, uh, and we've had this discussion, my siblings and I, more since he passed away, it was always this thing of like, oh, do we think dad actually had something to do with it? Because it was kind of weird that uh, he was so close with Calvin, they were best friends, and that Calvin would go away from murdering this guy and dad wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And so it was always this question of like, all right, so is Calvin really innocent? uh, And dad was telling the truth, or is dad really guilty? And, uh, you know, and feels bad that Calvin's in jail. And, uh, you know, our discussion uh, about it uh, eventually led uh, for me, led to me sort of trying to find the answer for myself. And the result mm-hmm. is a uh, is a podcast series called The Estate, which is available on uh, Apple, Spotify, wherever. If you're listening to, to this <laughs> podcast right now, that hyphenated, uh, you can you can go in that search bar. You can stop this episode right now. Uh, find and download the estate and listen wow. uh, to the entire thing online. That's right. I am promoting my podcast in the middle of your Shameless. podcast and Shameless. encouraging people to stop listening and go over there right now. Get out of this. Best <laughs> you can. Absolute shameless plug. But you know what? At least it's an honest plug. Let's be yes, honest. Yes, of course. You know? Of course. Well, I mean, because so a lot of people have like secrets in their families, secrets in their lives, stuff that you sort of keep keep in the in the family closet as as it were. Um, but you decided to air this out publicly on yep. a podcast, right? So, so because here, let me explain something to you. Sure. I am a enormous true crime fan. Like, I I don't think a lot of my listeners know this about me, but it, it is truly the way that I I relax, and it's not because I'm a psychopath. It's it's because I like finding order in chaos. I like listening to stories of like deep human depravity and then finding order in it, finding that like there's a justice system and there's witnesses and there's this and there's that. And then there's there's at the end of the day, you catch the right person that did it. Right. And um, I always felt a little bit, I would say, guilty about it. Um I, I don't and, and and you know so many of these true crime podcasts that are hosted by like it's always hosted by like two white women that are like and today <laughs> we're going to solve the murder of Janky Jenkins but right now a word from our sponsors do you want fifteen percent off Squarespace like it all feels so <laughs> like weird right like it feels like we are using entertainment uh th- we're we're using trauma as entertainment and right. I always felt weird about it, but I do find it like incredibly interesting. And so you're a f- very good friend of mine that is on the other end of this. You're creating the podcast, but in such a different way, because a lot of the people that host these podcasts have nothing to do with a crime, or even if they do have something to do with a crime, it's like, I went to high school with the murderer, you know, and it's like, you probably didn't even talk to them in high school. Let's be real. You're using this <laughs> as a platform again, but you are like, you are inextricably linked to this this is your your dad and so how was the process of you deciding to do this first of all and what was the process like did you find more closure did you find more peace or 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 just just walk us through how crazy this this has been right right so well yeah like i said like the i think the i think i have that sort of same understanding of like oh wanting to create order out of chaos uh, you know, the the messiness and the sort of the weeds of people's lives are, are sort of entertaining and very fascinating. And I think uh, for me and for my siblings as well, that was sort of the initial draw uh, into trying to find out more about this case. Like part of it, I think, is 
our dad was sort of very mysterious. Uh, he was always sort of, you know, when he, t- when he talked about that time in his life, he was very general. Uh, he was definitely closed off emotionally. I think a lot of that was due to, uh, you know, being a guy of his generation and the things that he experienced as a kid. Uh, you know, he was the, the son of, uh, migrant workers, uh, in California he was born in like the 1940s. It's like, you know, the, his, his view of the world was like totally different from ours. And so in a way there was this sort of barrier or wall uh, between him and his children uh, that existed. It's like generational wall, right? Right, right. First generation American, second generation American type of wall. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, so he, and he just grew up with a a completely different set of values. I mean, his dad was born in like the 1880s. So if you could imagine a dude like born in Victorian times, like, yeah, like, so raising a, you know, a kid that was born before the end of World War II, and then that guy raising a fucking millennial. Oh my uh, God. Yeah, it's just, it's horrible. It's, where you're like, I'm depressed. And he's like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) Get in that trench and shoot that German. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, that, that's, that was sort of the upbringing. And so I think, uh, you know, speaking for myself and my siblings, like we were all sort of really interested in in kind of finding out like both in sort of that morbid curiosity that, you know, anyone who listens to true crime sort of has to figure out like, oh, like what happened? But then there's also this emotional connection of wanting to understand uh, our dad a bit more. And so that's sort of where that uh, that kind of drive came from. And I think I'm very much like you, like my my desire to sort of like make sense of like, you know, the messiness of life and the, and the things that happen to us. I think that's, uh, it's very trauma informed, but mm-hmm. even, even as like a little kid, I remember like when I would watch something like 2020, uh, which was a, a news program that would come on on Friday nights and they'd always, it, every headline was always like something that was going to kill you. It's like, uh, oh, there's an E. coli breakout at Jack in the Box. Uh, the um, the pool tubs and kiddie pools like will suck your intestines out if you sit on top of them. Killer b- bees are moving from Latin America into Texas and on into California. And I remember each time like hearing about this and be like, oh, okay, this thing is going to kill me. Uh, so I have to understand everything about it. I have to know, uh, you know, what the, what the threat are. What's the migratory pattern of these bees? Uh, like how hot do I have to cook the meat to kill the bacteria in it? Uh, whatever it is. And I'm, I'm sure to some extent too, like, you know, finding out that my dad had uh, maybe been considered a uh, participant in this murder. I was like, oh, you know, would my dad kill me for insurance money? Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe I should find out some more about this case. Uh, and well, so- Well, I feel like with that, you're, you're, you're telling us a little bit about what the relationship was with your dad. I mean, right. not only was there a big generational gap, not only was there, uh, you know, a, a big difference in, in values perhaps, but, I guess this, you you were, it seems like you were afraid of him. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, my dad was emotionally and physically abusive. I, I should, <laughs> oh, maybe we should have started with that. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's where the other thing came from. Yeah, I, yeah. So, you know, like, so, and that's part of it, too. And, and once again, I think that, you know, that was also sort of the result of his experiences. Uh, you know, I, I know that his dad was sort of like a, uh, a bit of a brutal disciplinarian. And like, you know, the value of that time was just like, oh, yeah, you have to hit your kids. Uh, to make them act right. Uh, and I, I think that's sort of a, that's a cultural pattern uh, that's like, that was fairly common among uh, that generation. I think things are a lot better now. Like, uh, you know, speaking for my siblings, like all of them have made like efforts to kind of like sort of break away from that cycle. They practice positive parenting. Uh, they don't call their, uh, their kids uh, shit for brains <laughs> for not knowing the difference between a Phillips head screwdriver and a standard screwdriver. Uh, Phillips head is the four pointed one. The standard is the flathead. Wow. I um, wonder why you know that. 
<laughs> I need you to put your 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 hands on your ears and pull your head out of your ass, kid. Uh, <laughs> Happy seventh birthday. Uh, yeah, so like, you know, it's just, yeah, those experiences definitely kind of painted a picture of my dad. And uh, and essentially once he once he passed away, which is, you know, interestingly, was around the time that you and I met, uh, it sort of opened, uh, it opened up the family a bit because it allowed us to kind of like talk about this thing, this like sort of big question that we, you know, was sort of impolite for us to discuss uh, with him. Uh, but then people were also more open to sharing things as well, because, you know, once the person is dead, it's kind of like, all right, like, I don't have to be concerned with their feelings or whatever anymore. I mean, worst that can happen is that they haunt me. You know? <laughs> right. Well, yeah, unfortunately, I still dream sometimes. So, uh, you know, they, they pop in every once in a while to visit. Uh, but yeah, so the um, yeah, the once my dad passed away. Uh, we found that every single time we had a family reunion, we'd all get together. Uh, we would just talk about the case. Um, it was always just like, oh, you know, I, I heard this thing. Like, I, I saw Calvin. I spoke to him. Uh, I found, like, this old brief online. I found this old parole report, whatever it so was. So it's almost like all of you guys were dealing with this quietly. Like, you were, you guys were all your own world. All your siblings yes. were all dealing with this separately without saying it out loud to anyone. And then once your dad passed, it was like, hey, are we all... Are we all thinking the same thing? Are we all like wondering what the fuck this was? Exactly, exactly. Like it, it was just a matter of sort of getting it out into, you know, we can openly discuss this now. Mm-hmm. And so once uh, we sort of had that uh, that restriction kind of taken off of us, it was just like, all right, like, like what can we find out? Uh, and yeah, and, and that's the thing of it too, is at a certain point, um, you know, the the Google searches, like, you know, talking to relatives, whatever it is, it, it gets you to a certain point. Uh, but we we still sort of realized that we didn't know the entire story. And so the what sort of happened was in, in 2020, when the pandemic was going on, uh, I actually reached out to Calvin. Uh, I had his number. He had been in touch with my older sister. And um, was he still in jail? No, no, no. So Calvin, so uh, the interesting, this was another thing too that sort of drove our curiosity as well is that, so Calvin was released in 2013. Uh, I think just after my uh, my dad and my mom had passed away. Uh, that's when I got Bruce Wayne. Uh, and so... <laughs> I, love, I love Bruce Wayne versus Orphaned. <laughs> yeah, there you I go. I love that more. It makes me sound rich and handsome and I am neither. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, so Calvin Calvin was re- and that sort of raised this other question because we were like, oh, he's been in there for thirty years, he's never admitted to this crime, and now he's out. And so part of us were kind of wondering, like, oh, did Calvin did Calvin talk? Did he, you know, provide details more details on the murder? Like, how is he out all of a sudden? He's been he was there for literally thirty years. Across America, BP supports more than two hundred and seventy five thousand jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But once we found out he was out, it was always a thing of like wanting to talk to him. But then there's this concern that like, you know, uh, I don't want to re-traumatize this guy. Uh, who's been in jail for this uh, this offense for 30 years. This has been his life, basically. Uh, or, you know, the other thing, too, is, like, you ask the question and then you get the answer. And so you don't want to know the answer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And part of you doesn't want it. You know, just like, oh, did yeah. It's like, yes, uh, your dad and I killed him and we had a fun time doing it. You know, that's... <laughs> worst the case worst, scenario. Worst case scenario. Uh, but at, at the same time, it's kind of like, well, you know, uh, it's 2020, uh, Calvin is is old. Um, you know, people are are dying from an illness that like uh, targets the elderly uh, and targets a vulnerable populations. Calvin's African American, and and so uh, the thinking was like, oh, if I don't get this story from him, if I don't talk to him, uh, he might uh, he might die before um, before sharing this information. So it wasn't and- just about you finally being ready because maybe you will never have been ready. Right. It was like, if I don't do this now, maybe this will be a question in my life forever. Right, right. Maybe we'll just keep going in circles at these family reunions about like, oh, what happened in this in this case? Like, what did they allege that um, my dad and Calvin did? Uh, so yeah, but that first phone call, uh, I actually made a point of like not talking about the, the case at all. I basically was more interested in kind of finding out um, like how Calvin even knew my dad, uh, like how they met, like their history. Uh, it was it was kind of like, I don't know if you ever had to do these projects in middle school where you would talk to somebody who was like old. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is, I did. It was what a yeah. weird concept. Right, right, right. But I, I had to do like three of those reports when I was a kid. And at a certain point, I was just like running out of people over the age of 60 who I'd feel comfortable enough talking to for like uh, for 20 minutes or what have you. Uh, but um, yeah, so I, I basically just sort of got Calvin's I got Calvin's life story and sort of the story of his friendship with my dad, more or less up until uh, the murders or the murders, the the murder, the, the one, single the sing, murder, the singular murder, the murder of uh, your childhood is not an actual murder. <laughs> right, right, right. Everyone's guilty. Um, and so uh, yeah, so that's that sort of uh, it prompted that first conversation. And from there, uh, it sort of spun out into wanting to do this as as sort of a podcast. And there was that concern about like, well, you know, it's kind of a private family matter. And this is something that was uh, discussed with the siblings as well, because everyone wanted to get more information uh, and and to sort of, you know, f- figure out like kind of like what happened and, and get to the bottom of things. Uh, and there was concern on, on one sibling in particular, who I won't name, um, who's very much like, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, super curious about this stuff and I want to know the answers too. I'm just worried about it being out in, in public for everyone. And that was, you know, sort of the contrast. But like, on the other hand, my thinking is like, well, like, you know, my father was publicly prosecuted uh, for murder. Like he was accused of this crime. And uh, like this is sort of the like the thing that our family has just kind of carried and has been a part of our uh, our upbringing, our existence uh, for my entire childhood. I had no idea about it, and so to the extent that it, it gets attention on that or whatever, it's just like you know the chicken's burnt, you know mm-hmm. it's already it's cooked. Like you know we like the like whatever happened happened. Everything else, the only thing that we're bringing up now is maybe how we feel about it. 
And, uh, you know, I'd rather have that and have other people be aware of that than to to not know. Because that was the other part of it, too, is the exchange is, you know, if I was if I was Bruce Wayne, I yeah, I probably would have paid someone to like go out, conduct this this entire investigation, you know, write everything into report, uh, give it to me in a little black dossier and I could read it. And you can like, read you know, it in your enormous mansion by yourself <laughs> my mansion, being more exactly. sad. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Without having to share with anyone. But the thing is like, uh, I got law school debt. <laughs> I write for a cartoon show. Yeah, which is another part I wanted to ask about, which is, you know, before when I met you, we were obviously in the world of comedy in New York. I didn't meet you because you were my lawyer. But at the at that moment, you were an attorney, and you were an attorney right up until a, you know maybe a year into us working at Disney. You were working two jobs, so you know I think you were born to write comedy and and to write for TV. Why? I mean, did this did the fact that your fa- your family had like a question mark of murder in your life like influence you being like making the decision? to go to law school and effectively become a lawyer. Right. I mean, like the, it's funny because I, I do get this question a lot. And when I reflect on it, it's kind of like the murder itself. Like it was this big shaping force in our lives. Like it it dictated our, I think it, it, it sort of dictated a lot of our interactions with our dad, with like the way we sort of perceived uh, adults in our family. Um, it, uh, you know, it, it definitely sort of influenced like his career and like what sort of happened to him. Uh, and I think to 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 that extent, it did have that effect. Now, I don't think it was a conscious thing because I think for me, like when I, when I found out about it, I was sort of like a teenager and it wasn't like it sort of prompted me to be like, oh, I want to find out about the justice system and mm-hmm. like, you know, how, how this thing could happen to people or whatever it was. I think the the sort of like backdoor sneaky way that it came up is that like it made my family very financially uh, insecure because like my dad, like his career never really recovered. He'd been in politics. Uh, at the time of the murder or the time of the uh, the trial and it had sort of like uh, thrown him off of that course in his life and then after that he's you know he sort of did like some freelance consulting stuff and like that sort of thing but never really earned like a real income uh, as long as I knew him and so growing up I was just like oh okay like you know my family is like middle class sort of like barely hanging on my mom's supporting the kids Um, like it's probably really important for me to have a stable job and a profession and uh, like a lot of other kids coming out of uh, coming out of the United States at that time was like, yeah, professional school, that's the way. Uh, that'll lead me to uh, happiness and, and riches and a you know three thousand square foot wife or whatever. Uh, and three thousand square foot. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, I know exactly what you mean. Surprisingly, I do. <laughs> there we go. There we go. So, um, so yeah, so I think that's sort of, you know, those like small, like kind of like background, uh, you know, influential factors are what pushed me, uh, pushed me to that. Like, I don't necessarily know that, um, you know, I I think if I had known more, if I'd been more aware of, of what had happened, like I probably wouldn't have picked this, uh, picked this, that profession, uh, law because, you know, uh, the experience of creating this podcast of sort of reading through the trial and, uh, coming to understand the the charges and the way that uh, the authorities kind of investigated the case actually made me very uh, very disenchanted uh, with the the legal system. Uh, and interestingly enough, like once I finished the um, you know I've, I've been a member of uh, three state bars in my time, and uh, the, you know the first one that I took was for the uh, the the California state bar exam. I took that, I passed, and I became a member like right out of law school. 
And, you know, for years I'd been an inactive member because I never actually practiced there. And then, you know, I sort of stopped paying my dues. And then after I finished this podcast, I was kind of like, you know, I don't want, I want nothing to do with this fucking, with this profession anymore. So I actually resigned. I wrote a, a letter, a motion to the uh, state Supreme Court of California saying, please uh, let me resign my bar membership. I, I never intend to Are practice in California. Are you serious? I'm serious. And so they sent me a little letter that says, all right, you've officially resigned. Is a part uh, of it California. because in the podcast you find some perhaps um, proof that, you know, the justice system is unfair? Oh, I mean, like, I, I think that's just <laughs> perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> that's, a, that's an excellent. You would make a great attorney. That's an I insult. I wonder. <laughs> May it be. No, no, for sure, for sure. I mean, like, yeah, there there are there were lots of little discoveries and revelations along the way. Uh and yeah, even talking uh to my aunt on my mom's side who who is an attorney, she said, like, yeah, you know, you could indict a ham sandwich. Like legally, you could. You could <laughs> you could charge really? a ham sandwich. I mean, like uh, you know, eventually it would be thrown out I because thought that, ham- I thought his name was Steve Bannon. Oh snap! Look oh, at that! Oh, wow. that's an old reference. You gotta get that. Reference. You know, you, you gotta get that in your 2016 Colbert packet. My God! How did you know it was actually in the 2016? <laughs> I don't think it was Colbert. I think it was another packet. Guys, <laughs> packets are basically scripts you send to shows so that they hire you. And that is a joke I wrote in 2016 that I brought <laughs> right. back. Yes. Of course. And, and the funny thing is, like, some version of that joke probably played on five different late night shows uh, at some point in time. Wow! Thanks, Alex. I guess I'm not an original <laughs> thinker. No. I'm not I'm not that's an insult against them not you my gosh you know they're still running that stuff they would be if they could but um but yeah so yeah it it was definitely very disenchanting and like there are lots uh, you you kind of go into the profession sort of understanding like any other profession there are flaws like there are oversights uh like there are injustices and like you know but everyone's there like you know trying to do the job trying to make it a, a better system like you know trying to get the the gears of equity and uh, and justice, uh, you know, finely tuned, and you know, this experience showed me that that they're not like the same problems that we ran into back in the 1980s, or the same, basically the same ones we we encountered in the 1960s and the 1940s. They've been going on uh, since this country, since before this country was a country, and uh, to some extent, uh, they continue to exist and persist today. And it turns out that not a uh, damn thing uh, a public servant has done about it has made any difference. It's Uh, so funny because when I moved from Venezuela to the States and when I, you know, when I was a juror for the first time in my life, you know, coming from an autocratic country where uh, it's not a jury system, it's a judge system and the judge are like appointed by, (laughs) you know, like a dictatorial government. Like, you know, (laughs) so, you know, my uncle was my two uncles were put in jail for, you know, one of them was a journalist and they called him a terrorist. And then my other uncle was in a, in a business with a guy that had involvement in the government. And they were like, oh, we just want the full business. So we're just gonna put him in jail. So, you know, coming from that system, when I came here, I had a very, I'd say, romanticized fairy tale and also I as I told you I've watched true crime my whole life forensic files I was like oh my god I love CSI and I love lawyers you know what I mean like that's a country where justice fully functions um but you know obviously throughout the course of 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 my life here in the states that's obviously been proven false every system is is a bit broken and um some people are are victim to a broken system more than others and then you know and you have people that get away with literally get away with murder if they have money um so you know you you felt it uh firsthand um 
I think a lot of people feel it tangentially um, or, or because they have to be jurors in something and they don't want to. Uh, but I, I do find it really interesting that it wasn't, it, it, you, you, like, I feel like that's a symbolic move for you to write to the Supreme Court of California and be like, I don't want a, any part of this. Because you could have just not paid your dues, right? Right, right. And that's what I was, that's what I was doing more or less. And they're like, well, you can't practice if you're, if you're not paying. I'm like, yeah, I have, I've never practiced in California. Like, uh, you know, I got this license almost by accident. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I could have just sort of, you know, continued doing it. But at a certain point, I was kind of like, you know, I don't. I, I I don't want to really be a part of this, like, you know, to, to draw a living from it, whatever it was like, you know, and because in the beginning, too, like when I went into law, I never imagined myself working at like a big law firm or doing, uh, you know, high stakes M&A or corporate litigation or what have you. Like I, I was happy to be sort of a like a little county or city attorney or uh, or what have you. And that's that's kind of what I did when I met you. I was working as a litigator for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. And then when I uh, I left to come to uh, our show on Disney, I was working for the New York City Department of Education. Um, you know, and the, these are sort of like you know the public uh, you know public service oriented jobs. Like you know we're out there sort of like you know fighting for the people of New York. Uh, you know fight, fighting for the uh, the children of New York City. You know to ensure that they have a, uh, a safe and a healthy learning environment and everything else. And yeah, and like the same you know the same issues keep coming up everywhere. Uh, and yeah, and it was very sort of it was very frustrating in a way. And so at a certain point, it's kind of like, well, I think I'm going to do uh, more good uh, writing a show about a talking uh, hamster uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, than I am busting a, a you know a principal who's stealing time or whatever. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's what you were doing, busting. Like, you just come in and it's like, stop right there. You're <laughs> eating a two-hour lunch instead of a one-hour lunch. There we You're go. Stealing yeah. one hour of taxpayer money here, baby. <laughs> that's right. We're going to spend a thousand times... Uh, the amount of the thing that you stole to you know, put this down in a report and have nothing happen. Exactly. I think this is a show. I think we, this is a pilot <laughs> waiting to be written. It's there we go. low stakes crime fighting. That's right. We can call it, um, God, I'm trying to think of a horrible pun title. Uh, teacher's, pet. Teacher's, teacher's Pet. Teacher's Pet. Oh, te yeah, Teacher's Pet. Teacher's Pet. Teacher's Packed. Teacher's Pet. You know what? We're off the clock here. There you we know, go. <laughs> Disney's not paying us for this. That's hour. right. Uh, um, I have to say that I do. I do feel a little guilty um, because as you were doing this podcast, you know, you were working two jobs and you were doing this podcast and you were rehashing a lot of this trauma and you were sort of having to deal with maybe dormant feelings that you weren't realized you felt and selfishly. Uh, when you told me about your dad and, 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 and all this, since I was a true crime fanatic, I said, you should do a podcast. Um, and then I saw you suffer for two <laughs> years. That's true. That's true. And and for the record, uh, yeah, Joa is a, a se I like to call it a, a secret producer on my uh, on my podcast you know she sort of uh, put me in touch with the person who uh, eventually helped uh, make this a thing so she is the architect of my torment uh, architect of your torment I that's mean, right I love that you know there put that go. on my tombstone architect of torment there we go I like that uh, yeah we'll get that done next year 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm here for a good time, not a long time. Maybe. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. No, no, no. So like, you know, I'm, and I've said it before and I say it again, like this is not necessarily an experience I would want to recreate, but I am happy that I did it. And I, I do thank you for no. uh, giving me some of the input. I don't thank you. <laughs> no, no, don't no. thank me. My don't feelings are nice. valid. Don't yes, be nice, yes, Alex. Come course, on, that's course. not what it, our relationship is based it, it, on. It, it's not based on nice. You know, I do, I do, I feel, I feel both gratitude and resentment. <laughs> that's perfect. That's I'm basically your parent. That's it, um, more or less. So, so okay, so you're, uh, you know, you're a moderately funny person. Um, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> I, you know, I, I've thought about a lot about this as in the past few years in particular as I've. You know, I'm no longer a youth. I feel like I'm approaching middle age slowly but surely, faster but surely. Surely, and, surely. Um, for me, humor is just it. It it almost feels like I I could not survive life without it. Like I just I don't know how people go through life without humor being maybe not the first reaction because the first reaction is usually not. Let's laugh at this. But like it's the fear. close second, yes. the yes. close second reaction to everything in my life is like, how do I make a joke out of this? Because it, it it gives levity to things. And so I always say that like the funniest people are also the ones that feel everything else the most because that's that's sort of how it works. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Do you think that the fact that you, and you have a very particular sense of humor, Alex, I'd say your humor is very, it can get very dark and very funny, but also very like complicated. And you can like, some of your jokes are so out of like, they come out of nowhere and (laughs) they shock. Um, Do you think your humor comes out of some of this and are other people in your family finding like use humor in this way or are you the weird comical relief in the uh, romantic comedy that is your life (laughs) (laughs) i I think uh, that that is the case for me i found that it was much it was very difficult to connect with uh with other kids and with other people uh you know just because of of sort of my background the way i was raised the way i interact with other other people i think it's very very different uh as i said uh you know uh, father violent Mexican raised by a Victorian violent Mexican, uh, so it you know, produces. Uh, you know, it's it's weird. I, I often joke to people that like you know you've heard of elder millennials. I'm like an eldritch millennial. It's like mm. I exist in a completely different uh, you know plane of understanding. Like my references are all like you know 50 years out of date. Like 
it's uh, it's strange. It's very strange. And so for me, it, it was very difficult to connect with other kids on like, oh, common interests or what have you. And so uh, humor was kind of the way that I would I would make friends uh, and that I would make like a uh, connection with someone else. And I think in our in our family, like, you know, we're I think we're all like pretty funny, but I was the only one that was kind of like actively working at like, you know, uh, not necessarily like performing necessarily, but, um, you know, that I, I would use humor in a way that was sort of different from my siblings. Like, you know, we would we would always like, you know, kind of bag on each other and like make jokes and insults and like everything else. But I was sort of the one always looking to like, you know, escalate it to like, you know, get the prank or the whatever it was, the revenge to like, you know, a, a high, like ridiculous point. Um, I'll, I'll tell this this little story right here. Um, so when I was a, um, a kid, you, did you ever do a Valentine's Day at your school? And then the kids would everyone would have to give everyone else like candy and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. You mean yep. m- one of the most traumatic days of my childhood? <laughs> oh, Absolutely. Oh, God. Uh, I've opened a door. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yeah. Well, and here's an example of a way that, that I kind of did that. And um, and so what happened was, so I remember I had this this friend in one of my classes who, you know, we, every once in a while we'd have like a disagreement or something. And then I remember we got into a fight on um, like a- around Valentine's Day. And so uh, what I did was, uh, you know, I had a bag of candy that had like 30 pieces in it. There were 30 kids in the class and like everyone would get one. And so uh, I started giving candy out. But what I did was the morning I took two bags of candy out of it. And so uh, I started giving, uh, you know, the one piece of candy to like every kid or whatever. I'm going in order. And then I get to my friend and then myself because, you know, you start like, you know, it's a Montessori school. So there's like a system of equity where you, you go around and start and everything else. And so I orchestrated it so that she didn't get any candy and then I didn't get any candy. And so, you know, she starts crying. You know, we're, we're elementary school students. So she starts crying that I didn't do it. And I was just like, you know, why would I do it to you? Like, I didn't even get myself candy. It was a complete accident. Wait, is this humor or manipulation? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I don't think I know the difference. Uh. <laughs> There is, therein lies the joke. But it's just like it's just sort of like that. That's the kind of thinking that I would that I would sort of engage in. I, I'm what I'm doing is painting a picture of myself as a young man, so you can sort of understand like the like the level of thought that would have to go in for a child to be like on that morning. I'm angry at my friend, so I'm going I'm going to uh, humiliate her by not giving her any candy, and then I'm also going to throw blame off of myself. But not giving myself any candy. Because why wouldn't a kid want candy on Valentine's Day? Yo, that oh. is, um, I think you could have been a criminal. And then you decided <laughs> to do a hard pivot into being a lawyer. And then another hard pivot into being a comedy writer. That's right. And here right. we are. And here we are. And here we are. So, yeah. So, that, like, that, it's it's all, I mean, like, I guess the, the other part of it, too, is I think a lot of it is sort of, like, trauma-based. Uh, you know, just in terms of like, oh, you know, it's a coping mechanism. It's, you know, trying to find like the best situation. It's finding a way to sort of survive um, with like, you know, the weird, brutal reality of uh, being on this terrible planet, uh, which, as I mentioned, is a uh, kind of a drag sometimes. Were you did were you able to find humor while making this insane podcast? A, a little bit, yeah, for sure. I mean, like one of my big bummers is that there are, you know, there are lots of things that we recorded and, um, you know, things that I wanted to sort of inject uh, that are sort of more in my voice uh, in terms of just having like that kind of weird gallows humor. And, you know, the podcast, I think, is is well done. I don't think it's like 100% a reflection of uh, the 
you know, um, like kind of like, you know, my humor and like my, um, you know, my uh, sensi- sensibilities in it, uh, you know, because we're dealing with like, you know, a guy who was incarcerated and torn away from his family for 30 years. We're dealing with a terrible murder uh, that uh, that has basically been unsolved, uh, more or less, uh, the way that it was prosecuted. And so, uh, so yeah, to some extent, it was kind of like, you know, we wanted to give the audience sort of like the best chance for like grasping onto the material. Uh, I would have injected more humor into it, of course, but, uh, you know, it, it might have been difficult to find someone willing to laugh along with such uh, terrible circumstances. Um, yeah. So, yes. <laughs> as, as someone who's listened to it, I'm like, I feel like I saw another side of, of you because both of us, we really do encapsulate our trauma and our sadness with like a lot of humor. Yeah. And like the saddest moments are always just dripping with sarcasm. And, you know, I also think that's not that healthy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes you can just be like sad or, or observant or tell a story. Um, so that was like, I did appreciate listening to like a serious Alex Estrada almost more like the attorney versus the comedy writer. Right. Um, so I really did appreciate it. And I also felt like it, it, it tells us, it tells a story through your perspective. Um, and it also, it, it does a good job of, of building uh, the case through different perspectives. So it isn't just a murder happened. Someone died. Then there was an investigation. It almost feels like a diary. Yeah. Um, and it feels more human. And now I'm having trouble listening to like my regular crime podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I'm like, of course there's like people that not only the people that are affected, it's like the, the family, the, the friends, the people, you know, the, uh, friends and family of the people that are now incarcerated. Like this is, it, I don't know the, I don't like to say that I see this type of, of, quote unquote and look what I look at the word I'm going to use entertainment mm-hmm. um you know using it it's so weird that humanity is using like the darkest moments of some people as entertainment um but I also feel like as comedians we are very unafraid of the darkest moments um because they are so fertile for reaction and perspective um, yeah I don't think we shy away from it right right 100 percent. yeah I think the like part of the thing that true crime uh, gets away with is it's sort of like it, it portray it's you know as we we're talking earlier about uh, creating order out of chaos um, the the thing that we don't always get is is sort of understanding like the full consequences mm-hmm. um, you know not only of the crimes themselves but also you know the reactions the aftermath of the crime mm-hmm. um, and I think that's something that, um, that that's often ignored in true crime and something that I sort of uh, strove to like bring into the uh, bring into the light a bit with my my family's own experience. Uh, just because the you know the consequences like have been written on our lives on right. everybody like it it colored our our relationship with our dad uh, you know certainly colored um, you know the way that he interacted with uh, with Calvin and with uh, you know with uh, city authorities and stuff for the rest of his life and of course you know that will will translate down on to uh, to our descendants you know to like my nieces and nephews and their families and stuff because of um, you know of this this terrible thing that happened back in the 1970s it has it ripples across and, and you know that's just a, a family of a guy who was accused of this crime right. uh, not even convicted like you know if you start thinking about calvin and his children uh, about tony Virgi- virgilio the man who was killed and like his family 
Like it's like the the podcast is full of that. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, and, and as comedians especially, it's sort of like. Yeah, I think we often sort of try to like, you know, like part of the fun is sort of untangling like, oh, like the hypotheticals, like, you know, the ridiculousness kind of highlighting uh, consequence in a way. Like, you know, I I remember um, some of my, uh, like the discussions we used to have, like uh, at the pit and, and thereafter, like, you know, I used to perform with a, a sketch comedy group and we did a lot of stuff that was sort of focused on, on what I would call, I want to call it risque. It, it feels <laughs> like you were, we're walking around in negligees. Uh, yeah, no, but, no, that's not the type. <laughs> that's not the type. That's fun. It's not, not my thing. <laughs> but, you know, we, we would deal, like you said, with like sort of these hard, complicated concepts. And there was always this fear that like, oh, we're going to get the audience to turn on us because we're, we're taking this premise too far or like, you know, we're going to present this in the right way. And, you know, my thinking was always just like, you know, there are certain certain categories of things that we talk about, that we joke about. We joke about um, like, you know, trauma or or race or, or what have you. It's like you're handling uh, nuclear material in a way. Mm. Um, but part of the fun, uh, I think, is kind of figuring out, like, how do we safely sort of juggle that? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, because if, you, if you're successful, you're a guy juggling uh, like an atomic bomb, basically. Like, you know, it's it's sort of exciting, dangerous if they pull this off, whatever. Uh, and if you drop it, uh, everybody dies. Um. Well, that's really, you know, that's what we do. We're, what we, we have do. people's lives in our hands right, as right, we right. juggle. Well, you, you know, know? You know I, I, I'm just saying, like, you know, that, you know you, you, you've done shows, I've done shows, like, you know, there have been... You know, and the most exciting acts to watch, and I think the ones that everyone emulates, and the thing, the types of performances that really make you want to get into comedy are watching people sort of, uh, you know, getting up there and kind of uh, nailing these subjects, these difficult yeah. to talk about, difficult, like, you know, people talk about like horrible things that have happened in their own lives, uh, you know, terrible things that have, uh, have occurred to them, like what have you. Um, you know, the captivating performances are the ones that sort of take those experiences. And uh, and manage to kind of pull off like you know it's basically like acrobatics in a way. Uh, yep. the, th- the thing that sucks about comedy is when you see people who go up and and try to do that who are either uh, inept or inexperienced or what have you, and then they you know they fucking die. They die yeah. on stage, and, and the audience and the show is. and the show dies with them. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. It, it's really interesting that you say this because um, one of one of the things that has happened um and and like a phenomenon a joke phenomenon that has happened that i've been following and that i find super interesting is that um venezuela is a country for example that is very it leans on humor a lot um and it's not a coincidence because it you know there's a lot of trauma there's a lot of a tragedy and basically there's this article i believe it was in the economist or or in the atlantic where they charted the jokes that were being said by Venezuelans, particularly in like from 2016 to 2018, which is right when, you know, there was a huge economic crisis and people weren't able to find food and this. And a lot of the jokes, a lot of the jokes that were used there were the same jokes, perhaps changed like a 10% from jokes uh, um, in, in countries that had been occupied by communism and almost identical and it, you know what what the article questions is did the joke sort of surge out of nowhere did they or or was there some influence but either way these two places that suffered very similar things were able to create jokes so similar to each other that then represented their tragedy and mm-hmm. um 
that jokes are sort of necessary as a way to to deal with with when you're surrounded by despair and chaos and uh, I, I I don't think it's a coincidence that us in our in a miniature scale, you know, we tend to gravitate towards people uh, that do the same. Um, like I recently hung out with someone who I like to call her kind of like a downer. Um, <laughs> I really care for her, but every time I hang out with her, it's like even the the least traumatizing thing in the world. It just feels like heavy burden and I understand that I understand that life is a heavy burden but sometimes when you're carrying that heavy burden like sometimes it's just funny to be like my back's gonna break with this burden on my back right like <laughs> it just it, it it creates levity and a necessary levity and I I do think it's admirable when people come out of bad situations and find ways to to make the world around them more light yeah. And I think I think you're one of those, you know, dumbasses. So yeah, I can't I, be nice to you. Can't, <laughs> you can't. You really can't. My God. I was about to be nice, and then I just pulled it back. You're about to you hit that point. You might, yeah. I mean, I, I I guess like you know that's that's some you know I don't I don't really have like life mottos or whatever. Like you know there there are no posters on my wall as you can see. Um, you know, I don't attribute a lot to like you know quotes or whatever it is, but you know I, I guess a, a a thinking a mantra. Uh, that comes to mind is kind of this idea of, of like, well, if I can laugh at it, then I can live with it. Uh, oh. You know, if, if this terrible thing that's uh, that's gone on that's you know happened to my family, like you know, here's an example of a you know a thing, because at my uh, my mother's funeral, like we were all you know we were it was six months after my dad had passed away. Um, it was kind of like you know it was a huge loss. My mother was wonderful, like um, you know whatever the complicated as complicated as my relationship with my dad was. Uh, my mother was like the exact opposite of that. Like, mm. you know, the relationship was so, uh, so pure and clear uh, that I felt nothing except for like true grief. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting with my uh, siblings, we were just talking about like, you know, what a drain the last nine months had been. Um, you know, and I have, uh, there are seven kids, I have six siblings. And, um, you know, I, you know, we we're just talking about like how sad the funeral was. And I, you know, we we're just like, sit in. And then I let a moment pass and I said, yeah, I'm like, you know, what's really sad. One of us is going to have to go through this six more times. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's funny yeah. It's true. It's true. It's true. And the, and the timing of it. Perfection. Did they laugh? Uh no, <laughs> it bombed. <laughs> that was a time when you were juggling. Uh, I, you know. I I I dropped the nuclear device. I'm sorry, Chernobyl'd. You were Chernobyl'd, but you know what? You came out stronger because of it. I guess. I don't think that's what happened in Chernobyl, but yeah, you know. Well, Alex, thank you so much um, for talking to me. Very rarely, I think, are people able to hear, you know, the hosts and you know, second tier victims of true crime and true crime podcasts, you know, <laughs> come and make jokes <laughs> on another podcast. Of course. Um, so can you remind the audience uh, uh, the name of the podcast, where to find it and where to follow you? Yes, of course. Uh, uh, the podcast is called The Estate, uh, which is uh, produced in conjunction with uh, Sonoro Media and Tenderfoot TV. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find me on Instagram at Alex Estrada NYC 
or on uh, Twitter at alexthestrada.com or alexthestrada. Wow, and my pers- almost my, nailed it. And my personal website is alex-estrada.com. Wow, how many times have you done that? Uh, just this once. <laughs> oh my God, you know what I forgot to bring up? Do you know uh, what I forgot to bring up? Uh, how everyone assumes that I don't speak Spanish and then everyone assumes Alex Estrada and the way that you look that you speak Spanish and you have the worst Spanish I've ever heard in my oh entire life. Oh my God, I, I remember trying to, yeah, like some of those scripts we got for uh, for Flama uh, <laughs> and yeah, just like my, my pronunciation's all off. It's really bad, it's really bad. Like I gotta do something about it, but. I think you're uh, the whitest Mexican I've ever met. There we go. On you the know, inside, on the, <laughs> on the inside. <laughs> yeah, on the, on the outside, I, yeah, I should be mowing your lawn. <laughs> you made that joke i didn't i did i did i did to make that joke i did make the joke i have mowed lawns it's hard work i have respect for anyone who does it <laughs> okay we need to get back to work actually all right we have, we we have several work. scripts to read <laughs> oh god yeah it's oh geez okay all right very good bye everyone bye Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.